CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there, happy Monday. Welcome to a fresh week of The Hash here on Coindesk TV. Sorry if you're an Eagles fan, but life goes on. Let's do this thing. I'm Zach Seward. We got Will Foxley. We got Wendy O and we got Christy Harkin. And Wendy is opening the show with a bit of a Super Bowl thingy, my bobber. Let's hear it, Wendy. What do you got? So we thought we were not going to get any crypto Super Bowl ads, but we actually did because we got a digital collectible slash NFT, which I think is a cryptocurrency. That's just my opinion. But DigiDico, and apologies if I pronounced it incorrectly, Super Bowl ad baffles viewers, but the free NFTs are still selling for approximately $700. I do believe we have a commercial from the Super Bowl. Oh my, scan now, scan now. Anyways, I don't, I don't scan stuff at all. Like I didn't have my burner phone with me and I didn't want to scan it because you never can tell. But anyways, as you guys saw that it featured a QR code to scan to mint one of 10,000 free dragon eggs, which are part of the game's Ethereum NFT project. And it's a Web3 gaming startup limit break and they paid $6.5 million for the ad. And some of the viewers say the QR code took them to the Twitter instead of the mint, which I believe it wasn't even the company. It was somebody that was affiliated with the project. But I think I saw um, Christy's hand up if you want to go ahead and tackle this oh. one. It's funny. It wasn't even so much a hand up as I was like, you know, agreeing with you. Okay, good. (laughs) Oh my gosh, please, please, please don't be scanning random QR codes that show up on a TV or on Twitter because people repost it because you don't know where that's going. You don't know what that's going to do to your device. That is a horrible, horrible thing to do. And as evidenced by this, okay, I just want to point out that on Sunday, George Kalidis wrote an article about how happy he was there wasn't going to be any crypto ads, and it's going to be excerpted for the Node uh, Today newsletter, and you should all read it, because part of it is about crypto hubris and executives and how these companies um, are buying these crypto ads and they are actually doing it more for their own ego probably than for anything else. Like, look what we got, look where we are. And then it goes to this, I mean, if you look at some of the Twitter after the fact, 
people are calling it a rug pull. People are it, it, people are calling it all kinds of nasty things. Uh, some people managed to actually get the um, the uh, NFTs, but a lot of people didn't, and they're feeling scammed. And what a horrible look for crypto! Again, again, like that is part of the reason that George was very happy not to have any crypto ads was because it, in the long run it hasn't actually been good for crypto and good for actual, you know, people, projects that are valid. So anyway, you should read the article because it's brilliant. Uh, Will, I also saw your hand go up. Yeah, let's go back to that number, $6.5 million. And I don't think they paid $6.5 million for that advertisement. They did pay $6.5 million for that ad space though, because that was a terrible, terrible commercial. Looks like I was watching <laughs> Saturday morning cartoons and they just threw that up there with the QR code. I was actually like taken back a little bit. There was another commercial that made it seem like you were going into a different app on your TV and it caught a lot of people off guard. They thought like, oh, am I still watching the Super Bowl? And that's kind of how this commercial was to me. I saw it. I was like, what's going on here? Like, am I still watching the Super Bowl or did someone sit on the remote? That's how I sort of took the whole situation. And it was like pretty cringy just all around, like even going to the tech, right? Like click into this QR code. You go to the Twitter account, the CEO who's running this NFT thing. And then from there, you can go onto OpenSea and purchase this weird, weird, weird NFT, this digital collectible. So it was basically on par. Like last year, we had like FTX and Coinbase, these big flashy commercials. And this year, when crypto is down in the dumps, we have an equally bad commercial. So I think it was very on brand for this year. Zach, to you. I mean, yeah. Remember when there was so much money spent on Super Bowl commercials last year? Remember when there was money in the industry to waste and spend lavishly on such... Uh, advertising spots. I mean, that was that was so crazy. Wow, that was so That's distant. Nice. That one year ago, and here we are. And this is the best that the crypto industry could muster is this NFT drop. Hey, man. I mean, for the folks who were able to flip it, congrats to them. They get the crypto hustle. They say, okay, everyone's talking about this thing. Maybe there's some people who will be exit liquidity for me if I claim this and list it soon enough, with the expectation that this is going to grow in value. Congrats to them. They played the game well. But yeah, I was just struck by the night and day difference between this year's Super Bowl and Crypto's Presence and last year's Super Bowl and Crypto's Presence, which was rather staggering in retrospect. But Wendy, I'm going to toss it to you. Really quick, I do want to add that it was a free mint. So people didn't free, actually yeah. have to pay anything besides, I believe, the gas fees. And I just think that like people watching the Super Bowl were kind of confused as to what the heck was going on. But it was kind of, I mean, it was a free mint, so that was good. But I think that their uh, marketing budget could have spent better elsewhere because it just seemed very egotistical. It was just a really weird thing that occurred. But shout out to anybody who got in on the free mint, uh, made a little bit of money. And you guys, please don't use your cell phones for doing things like this. That's very scary. And you shouldn't be keeping MetaMask on your cell phone anyways, unless it's a burner phone. But that's just my little thing. <laughs> Zach, go ahead with our next story. All right, I'll take it away. Let's go to Bact. Now, Bact, for those in the know, was a much ballyhooed project owned by, I think it was the New York Stock Exchange parent company, ICE. And it launched sort of at a bad time. They launched with this vision of being a digital, uh, sort of a wallet for digital assets, broadly defined, right? So both cryptocurrencies, but digital assets, such as airline points, rewards points to Starbucks and other retailers. They had this vision with this app that they could be sort of a digital asset investing app that involved all of those things and made, you know, say Starbucks rewards points fungible with airline mileage or even crypto assets. So anyway, they launched this thing two years ago. It didn't seem to take off that well. 
And now after two years, they're pulling the plug and they're focusing more on some of their B2B rather than B2C applications that they have within their product suite. So just wanted to talk about backed, sort of pulling back from the consumer facing stuff and changing things up again in the evolution of this company. I'm going to toss it straight to Wendy for her thoughts on this one. Really quick, I was going through my YouTube channel kind of like recategorizing things and I just remember seeing all these titles from about two years ago, the backed pump is coming, it's going to get us out of the bear market, etc. And that was the sentiment that we had during that time as we were like super excited about institutions coming in, all of those things. And it's just really interesting to see that they're actually discontinuing their consumer app after the two-year period. And I can kind of understand why we're seeing a lot of regulators come into the space and be a little bit aggressive. So it probably makes sense for them from a business perspective. But how fast things change? Well, I'd love to get your take on this. Yeah, this is a fun story just to look back on. It kind of dates everybody because it's not that old. But if you were paying attention to the backbeat, which was definitely a thing back in 2019, 2020, and you know the story is interesting to you. Like, there's a lot of names here, including like Kelly Lafleur, who is the former CEO and was a, a senator for a little bit. She had like a little stint with Backed, and then the Intercontinental Exchange, as Zach mentioned, was with this. And then they went into a SPAC process. They tried to do like this Starbucks reward app that had like this crypto thing. It had like the airline mile thing. None of it really panned out, and that happened with a lot of these firms, right? In 2019, 2020, they're trying to get product market fit. And they didn't quite get there, even with a Bitcoin pump. And now they're starting to break off and shed some of their products. It's funny just looking at some of the other unexpected heroes of the last two years who did really well. Typically, we weren't talking about them during the last bear market. So it's odd to like think back and be like, oh, this team did well, and I thought they might do okay. Um, then this team did terrible, and I thought they were going to be the superstars. But that's just sort of how the crypto markets pick and choose winners and losers. For Bact itself, I think you're totally on point there, Wendy. There's not a lot there for retail right now. Like no one cares about the space. No one's really going to be paying attention to it. Not a lot of people are buying unless they have a lot of conviction. Right now it's institutions. I know we always beat the institutions drum, but it really isn't institutions, right? They're not necessarily going to be the same ones. Maybe it's some people with small exposure. But what we're really seeing is people are going to buy into the space with deep pockets. Think retail scared for a little bit. And that's why we didn't see anything with the Super Bowl this year, right? Why sell to retail? They don't care right now. Uh, Christy, throw it over to you. Um, actually, a lot of what I was going to say, well, you just said, but I think that also when you look back historically over time, and I'm not talking just about this particular wave, but the last few waves, there was almost always a shift away from retail or the retail projects that were out there kind of petered out. I've seen over the last six years, a lot of companies that started with a a retail focus, a, you know, a consumer focus shift to business. There were tax platforms, for example, that would help you with your crypto taxes that ended up just being like, yeah, we're not actually going to work with individuals. We're going to work more with companies now. And I think that that's what you see when adoption on a, you know, a personal level is just not happening in the way that companies were hoping. And when you're, I think when your business model is this is going to spur adoption, then you're going to have to shift at some point because during a bear market, the adoption rate just isn't where people wanted it to be. And that's a hard, a hard uh, model to maintain. Yeah, I was having a conversation about this a couple of days ago. I think there is like something we said for sort of Trojan horsing your way to mass adoption through these big companies, right? If you can make the case to these big companies that there's some operating efficiencies or other cool things that blockchain technology can do, this like basically this database system can do for them 
that makes it, you know, again, cheaper to operate as they would normally, or potentially added benefits to their consumer base, you can kind of get to that 100 million users or that vaunted, you know, 1 billion users a bit more quickly than doing sort of the more consumer facing targeted standalone things. And I think that is sort of like an interesting sort of version of what that adoption story could look like. In Back's case, it's working with one of its uh, businesses that it acquired not long ago to get some of that backend software into some, some firms that might be using crypto in a way that would make sense for them. So there is a way, I think, that adoption could be fueled, again, through these enterprise use cases, which also like is PTSD word in terms of like last cycle and what enterprise use cases meant. But there, I think there is a compelling way to say, okay, here's the business case for why you, know, you Visa or you MasterCard really want to do crypto stuff, especially around like sort of payments. And I think that might be the place where that mainstream adoption thing actually ends up happening. But uh, Christy, I saw your hand. Definitely want to throw it your way. The other thing that might come into play is also where the regulations are going to go and how it's going to be affecting different companies versus KYC on an individual level. That is really hard to chase and track. Whereas if you're just working with a few larger companies, the regulation side of thing gets a little more, hopefully, <laughs> that's where the regulation side is probably going to have the most clarity in the near term. So it might just be even a matter of logistics. It's just a lot easier to deal with the business side than to deal with the retail side and having to worry about what you are exchanging or trading or holding will. Yeah, last on this is I want to pull in what's happening with Gemini right now, because I think there's some linkage here with the retail users, right? Gemini had about 300,000 people in its earn account. And that's what really retail wants is like sustainable yield in some sort of way. They want to get a little bit more interest. They want to have their toes in the water. They don't want to jump head first in like everyone else. Uh, So they just want a little exposure. Same time, it's really risky to be on that edge still because a lot of these applications are just being finished in product, right? Like they're just throwing it out there. They don't really know what's going to happen. And that's why Gemini earned customers are in this situation, right? They had exposure to the wrong pool of bets and now they're in a bad spot. Backed, on the other hand, just wasn't able to get exposure to retail itself. Retail wasn't really interested in what they had to buy and that's why they saw no adoption. So it's it's a really hard uh, product to find in crypto to bring retail into the marketplace. Remember that whole Genesis thing we are talking about for the last few months? Well, we have a few more details on that. Though, to be fair, I don't think anyone in this four box is going to be able to explain exactly what's going on because there's a lot of bankruptcy talk in here and we probably need Jen, our lawyer on the hash, to be here today. Fortunately, she is not. According to a new report coming out on February 10th, DCG, Genesis, and the main creditors have come up with an agreement on how they're going to divvy up Genesis and deal with the bankruptcy. Genesis, of course, filed bankruptcy earlier in January, and it plans on exiting Chapter 11 bankruptcy this coming May. But as part of the process, they're trying to figure out who gets what money. According to this new report, they're going to equitize uh, this 10-year promissory note, which was key and fundamental to the whole issue. This promissory note goes back to the Three Arrows Capital debacle that occurred in May of last year, where Three Arrows Capital defaulted on over $1 billion loan to Genesis Capital. DCG then assumed that liability. Now with Genesis underwater, DCG is in trouble because of that promissory note. Trying to figure out what to do with that $1 billion hole. It seems like some sort of equity deal is in the play here. Of course, it's a little confusing because this is a bankruptcy and there's a lot of different companies involved with it. Can I throw it up to Wendy? Please, please, please walk us through this. It's a little confusing. 
Um, unfortunately, I am not capable of doing that because there's too many shell companies and I don't have a big enough base on the wall in front of me to do like a diagram to link it like they do in those true, true crime series and stuff like that. If I did hear you say something about Three Arrows Capital, and I do believe that they were able to obtain funding for their new exchange, that they're going to be, I think they're tokenizing bankruptcy claims in crypto. So maybe they'll just do super well on that and it'll be very successful. Then the companies listed here will be able to collect on their claim that is owed to them. I don't really have any other explanation because it's a little bit messy, a little bit confusing. Zach, I did see it though. Yeah, it's GTX. GTX, baby. It's back. Anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know. There is a lot of moving parts here. And obviously, I think the thing to note, first of all, I guess, is you know DCG, Digital Currency Group, disclosure, Coindesk parent company as well. Some downstream ramifications that could be impacted over on this side of the shop. But I will say, Barry Silbert, the founder of DCG, like he got his start in bankruptcy law. So I'm hope like way back when, like in traditional finance. So I'm hoping he, you know, paid attention and was good at that back in the day because he seems to be bringing some of the chops from that world into how he's approaching this thing. Right? They're sort of like segmenting parts of the company into different parts into different companies, and then you know, equitizing some things. Again, it's all complicated. There's some things that obviously are of value. There are other things that are obviously massively in the red. So I think what I'm seeing here is that by breaking them up into various components, there might be a better way to make the creditors whole. So that's sort of the big picture. Let's hope Barry knows what he's doing because obviously there's a lot of money on the line. And especially in the case as it relates to the Gemini creditors, a lot of you know, smaller people who are, uh, who are upset while you know, the Winklevoss twins who founded Gemini uh, you know, increasingly escalate their public stance on on this feud. But yeah, Will, I'll toss it back down to you for, for this one. Yeah, well, I'll throw in the lawyer speak so everyone can understand uh, verbatim what we're talking about here. According to the Coindesk article, it says that equitization means the sales process does not result in the sale of all or substantially all of the assets of Genesis restructuring under the amended plan pursuant to which the GCGC creditors will receive, among other things, 100% of the equity in the reorganized business. So assuming that I understand what this is saying correctly, it basically means exactly what you said, Zach, that they're breaking Genesis down into different parts. Some parts of Genesis are fine. They have like a lot of different parts. There's trading, there's lending. I think they work with a lot of different companies in crypto to keep their balance sheets healthy as well, like a treasury portion. So you know, there's things that are actually above board. It makes sense, right? And they made a lot of money during the bull market. Like you cannot deny that, right? They did make a lot of money. And so they're probably going to break this apart and then sell those parts to other teams in the space. And then the stuff that's in the red, I guess you just have to take that on as a liability. Maybe DCG continues to assume this. The thing that is needs to be brought up here is the fact that if you're selling parts of this business, though, you're selling into a down market. So this is not going to sell the same way it would have a year or two years ago, right? If you're selling Genesis two years ago, this team would have made a lot of money because they had a really awesome team. They're able to bring in a lot of talent. And I remember all those headlines that we actually wrote a lot about, Zach, was that Genesis was picking up all these banking licenses or picking up all these different things to make them a prime broker. That stuff is important at some point, right? Uh, and now they're breaking this apart though, so maybe it doesn't matter as much and you're selling to a down market. It's going to be tough. Christy, you can throw it over your take. Well, I'm just sorry I'm not Jen, the lawyer, who could actually help out with this. So my commentary is a little more on the existential level that I'm just sorry that this is something that is happening to such a large company that's been, you know, kind of OG in the space, uh, responsible for building quite a bit, building the crypto sphere, building Bitcoin, building up other companies. 
that, you know, benefited from the growth of DCG. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how crypto plays out after this. Where are we going to go? What exactly is going to be affected and who's going to come out whole in the end and who's not? This is sort of a turning point in just the general overall building in crypto uh, and the health of the ecosystem. So yeah, that's 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 all I got to say about it, because thank you for breaking down that last paragraph, Will, because I read it about 10 times and I didn't find it helpful. <laughs> so. I think one little note here, it would be awesome to get like a call in line. So if you're a bankruptcy lawyer and you want to call into the hash and explain some of these things to us, we will take it. I think we got Christy for the last topic of the day, though, so I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, so today we have a massive story on the front page of Coindesk that was written by our investigative reporter, Anna Bidakova, and it is all about how crypto keeps feeding Russia's war despite sanctions. So even though there have been massive worldwide sanctions against Russia, Russian troops in Ukraine are receiving millions in crypto donations. And Anna has gone the distance to talk to various people who are involved in actually making sure that crypto funds are still flowing to Russia. So according to Coindesk analysis, a significant part of the $1.8 million went to centralized exchanges even, including Russian exchanges Garantex and Bizlotto, uh, both suspected of processing large amounts of criminal funds. But we also saw popular global platforms like Binance and Huobi um, that also managed to process some of these uh, funds, even though they say that they've been freezing accounts. It's a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole. And a lot of it is due to the covert operation of what's going on in terms of funding accounts. There's one NACC that's been operating actually since 2014 when Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula. And there was an armed insurgency in southeastern Ukraine, which predates obviously the current action. And they've been using crypto donations for a long time and getting really good at it. So they've managed to expand their processes before they used to just be uh, asking for Bitcoin. They now support Ether uh, and Tether wallets. And they've had lots and lots of donations. And these are going to grassroots level actions as opposed to the big public funding for Ukraine in, in digital currency wallets. And they are operating largely on the dark web and they know what they're doing. So I just found this a fascinating story. There's a lot to unpack here. So uh, anybody who wants to jump in? Yeah, this is a really big crypto story, right? Crypto blockchains are open permissionless. They're tools for good and bad, depending on your view of the conflict. And it's being used on both sides of this conflict as evidenced in this great piece of reporting from Anna. Uh, this is potentially, you know, I think this is, this gets to the heart of the issue, right? These are neutral tools. They go both ways. How do regulators the world over look at that? That is sort of the next question, right? And this is potentially a really bad look for what crypto can enable if you feel like many in the world do that the Russian act of aggression is unfounded. So obviously these are a set of tools that are being used on both sides of the equation, uh, directly funding the war effort, both pro and you know, both both for and against uh, the Russian invasion. So that's sort of the big picture thing that you have to think about when you think about crypto's ability to exist sort of outside of the purview of the current financial system and the many sanctions and many sort of uh, interlinkages with the global governmental apparatus that we see here. So this is big stakes. These are human lives that are being impacted by the funds that are moving across these rails. 
And it's something that certainly should be getting, I think, more attention, uh, including the war itself as it approaches its one-year anniversary. So it's pretty wild that, uh, that Anna did the digging here and found these wallets. The numbers aren't staggeringly large, I will say, but just the evidence here assembled is pretty striking. Um, will, I'm going to toss it to you. Yeah, Zach, that's one thing that actually popped off the page to me when I was reading this report, which everyone should definitely go check out on Coindesk.com, our favorite news website in crypto. Uh, the fact that the funds weren't like huge here, but they are substantial in the sense that like that money does go into someone's pocket and then that pocket can lead to a bullet somewhere, right? So like this money is going to fuel a war and it can lead to people's lives being lost. And so like any sort of way to like stop the funds moving here is of importance to a lot of people on one side of the conflict or the other. I think that's really an interesting angle here. Another part of this that's really interesting is just like the, the neutral part of crypto, right? Just like you said, Zach, it's permissionless open source blockchains, right? These blockchains don't really care that the money is moving back and forth. It's just code to blockchains. On the other side of all those, uh, all those code inputs is someone who's using that money to go purchase missiles, going to go purchase band-aids, or going to go purchase drones. And those things are being used in this war. It's something that I think a lot of people are going to be uncomfortable with, but I think it is a very strong indicator of what the future looks like. Going to take a little history corner on you guys, but in, back in the 1850s, the war in Crimea, same place on the globe, there was a very similar conflict. Uh, actually, we got to go though, Zach. So I'll take it out of history corner. Boot it up to you. I was excited for that history tomorrow, corner. I got to say, tomorrow. Right. <laughs> we are indeed overtime. So sorry, sorry about that control. All right, we're going to wrap it. I'm Zach, Wendy, Christy, Will. We'll be back tomorrow for more on the hash. Thanks. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 